Welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine Live. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, who I consider a dear friend. She is the founding managing partner of Stillmark. Stillmark is a Bitcoin-focused venture capital firm. She has been in the Bitcoin field since about 2013, and Stillmark's investments include Casa, Lightning Labs, Ibex Mercado, and Voltage. She is also the independent board director on Blockstream's board of directors. Elise, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Wonderful to see you. And uh, what did I miss? You have done so much and accomplished so much. I don't think that our introduction of you has covered everything you've done. What did we miss? You know, I'm just really grateful to be working with a lot of the smartest people in our space. I feel like, so today, Tarot was released in Testnet, right, by Lightning Labs, which is sort of the brainchild of Lalu and the the blood, sweat, and tears of a team that was really pushing. And so it was a reminder that we're so incredibly lucky to be alive when these people are, you know, have decided to dedicate themselves to advancing inclusive finance progressing culture by allowing people access to save and to transact and to participate in the global economy. And so if you missed anything, it's just that we've been really fortunate to work with incredible people and just really brilliant minds. And you mentioned some of those names up front and, you know, it's not an inclusive list, but this morning I'm thinking a lot about how fortunate I am to be working with the folks at Lightning Labs and just people progressing Lightning in general. We are all fortunate that you do the work that you do, Elise. And I'd like to just start there with Lightning. We see the Lightning network capacity reaching new all-time highs. We're seeing use cases continue to expand on the Lightning network. We continue to see transactions happening on an increasing rate. Where or what has you most excited out of the Lightning network space right now? It's definitely the iteration, the feedback loop between adoption and the folks that are building. And so Tarot is an example of that. So as you know, and as the audience knows, of course, in, in 2021, one of the big stories in Bitcoin was emerging market adoption of Bitcoin. And El Salvador really sort of carried the flag for that by introducing BTC as legal tender in late Q3. And alongside of that, they did this $30 airdrop experiment, right? Where they gave Bitcoin to most Salvadoran adults and that catalyzed robust economic activity. And from that, the Lightning Labs apps and infrastructures associated with Lightning Network were either able to gather KPIs and sort of understand how users would engage with these infrastructure and apps. And from that, then we saw this really quick iterative loop of entrepreneurial activity. So from that, we saw Terra emerge. We saw companies like Ibex Mercado really advance. We saw infrastructure mature. And so by infrastructure, I'm talking about not just Lightning Labs or Blockstream building at the, the protocol, the core level, but I'm talking about companies like Voltage or an Amboss that make that protocol more accessible to developers so that then developers can bring that to end users as, as we saw in El Salvador. And so that's when you see a space really mature is when you see that entrepreneurs are able to take feedback from their users and use that to inform their, the development of their technology or product. And so that's really what has me excited today is just to see the level of talent and how they're, they're engaging with users. 
What about you uh, all? What are you guys excited about? P, you go first. I'm excited about P's background. I'm feeling jealous of the setup he has there. Thank you so much. I spend way too much effort, you know, tweaking it, lighting, all sorts of stuff. It's sort of a fun side project. But I'm also super excited about the developments in the lighting network. I think the the one of the big challenges we face in Bitcoin is sort of the, the user experience and really bringing Bitcoin to people who are not as necessarily passionate about it as all of us are. And I think things like Federated Chamian Mints, the work that Fetty is doing are are really exciting as well as being able to to improve and continue to develop things, as you mentioned, like tarot and and you know other things involving um, Taproot and Schnorr. So, yeah, but- exactly. So I, I I'd say the same. And something that we're seeing to sort of expand on your thoughts, P, we're seeing more entrepreneurs have a chance to take a shot at goal. And so one of the changes in 2021 was introduction of capital really to the Bitcoin space. So when Stillmark launched in 2019, we were really one of the only organized pools of capital for Bitcoin founders to access, but that's changed. And so as a result of having more access to capital, we see more people with the ability to experiment to uh, to introduce products into the field and to to take you know shots and not just that but you used fediment as an example we're seeing founders that have had success that can inform their next project and company have a chance to do that really in a in a less frictionful way because there's the capital and resources there to sort of support them. And so with that, we see a, a real maturation of the field and, 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 and still we have to acknowledge that we're constrained. So even though we have you know, more founders present, more funding for founders, we still are sort of you know, resource constrained in some ways in terms of the opportunities that we have given where the core protocol has gone, for instance, with activation of Taproot or what's happened with Lightning Network as it's scaled and we've gained liquidity and also, you know, just simple adoption. We, you know, we, we still could use more resources to help progress startups, but I think we're, we have a really good foundation. And so it's just, there's never been a more dynamic time in the space, which is an interesting contrast to what's happening in the rest of the world. It really is, isn't it? Like each bear market and bull market cycle is so different, but to me, this one feels very interesting because we are in a bear market right now, but the level of institutional interest and just broader market interest in Bitcoin continues to just exponentially increase. And that's something that at least I didn't see as much in the, the previous bear market, right? There's Everybody was sort of like, Bitcoin is dead. And it seems like now a lot of the narrative is around like, you know, focusing on the the hacks and the exploits of, you know, NFTs and the larger crypto market, but people are still focused on the fact that Bitcoin is is here to stay, which is feels different. I'm curious, you know, you've been in the space for for a very long time, and I feel like in in your intro you were very humble. I mean, as you said, you are and Stillmark is one of the first large funds that is focused and has been focused for the entire time on just Bitcoin. And I'd love to hear more about your experience getting into Bitcoin and what inspired you and who inspired you to create your fund? So maybe if you could start with how you got into Bitcoin 
in the early days and how the creation of Stillmark uh, happened. Sure. Well, thank you for opening the floor for that. So what I think makes Stillmark different is that we have the Bitcoin Foundation and network, but we also have a background in venture capital. And so when I found Bitcoin, that's where I was coming from. I had spent at that point about a year and a half in venture capital. So I was still really new. I was learning. But what I was learning about then were new foundational infrastructures. And so when I found Bitcoin, I was working on challenges like cybersecurity, the introduction of data science for the application of proactive cybersecurity. We were working on things like cloud networking and would enterprise shift from a pure on-prem model to something that was split between cloud and on-prem. So I was working on these really sort of fundamental challenges of how the world, or at least the enterprise world would work as new protocols were introduced and that apps and infrastructure that sort of made them digestible to enterprise. Fast forward to 2013, I found Bitcoin. This was another really fortunate event for me and that we, at the firm I was at, we went into a co-working space to work with one of our portfolio companies to support their progress. And I just happened to sit next to a Bitcoin founder that had was mining from his desk. And so it was it was a really incredible opportunity to sort of have Bitcoin be tangible and also to have a resource right there to, to download the information about Bitcoin to me, to share that information. And of course, that's one of the great things about our community is that people are really keen to share both their enthusiasm and their knowledge. And I was a beneficiary of that then in 2013. What clicked for me was that Bitcoin provided an open and fair financial system where the rules are the same for everyone, regardless of how you come to Bitcoin. So if you come to Bitcoin wealthy or privileged, you'll get the same rules as if you come to Bitcoin as someone that's unbanked, underbanked, or otherwise censored. And so Bitcoin I saw as a fintech that could include poor people, which is important for it to really serve anyone, frankly. And so not only is it an opportunity for us to do, you know, well to make money, but it's also an opportunity for us to do that while doing good work that positively advances culture. And so there was no, you know, in contrast to what was happening in cloud or in cybersecurity, it just felt really deserving of my time. And so I spent my weekend hours and night hours really focused on Bitcoin and on the community and, you know, traveling to conferences, to, which was really fortunate because 2013, 14, 15 was a really non-noisy time. And so if you were at a conference, you know, there was no one there really with one exception pitching a token. And so it was really just a time to focus on what we were trying to build. And with that sort of background, so it was both that and going into the cypherpunk discussions, it was both, it was both of those resources that really, I think, allowed me to recognize pretty early that Bitcoin was categorically different than the things that were going to follow it not just from a technology perspective, but even in terms of what it was trying to do. And so that that's what really made the foundation of Stillmark. Now, we launched in 2019, and the timing of that was purposeful. What we wanted to see, what I wanted to see before launch.
blockchain stuff robust. Keith, are you able to hear? At least I feel like we, I've lost audio. I did also lose audio. Come back to us, Elise. We still can't hear you. While we wait. I guess we could share the breaking news that, I'm going to just say it like this. We were given a story to embargo for the next hour and 15 minutes by the company that embargoed it. And just for people who don't understand what an embargo is, including the company that broke said embargo, it is an agreement that is set forth saying that no one, including the party that is sharing the information, will break the embargo and will not share this news publicly until the agreed upon time. All parties, when they enter an embargo agreement, are held to that level of accountability. All parties including the party that is sharing the information. Turns out Swan and, I don't know, some wallet company have merged. Congrats, guys. <laughs> there you go. That's your breaking news. So spicy. Your, break, your breaking news is that people in this space don't understand what an, an embargo is. That's the breaking news here, guys. I'm salty. What can I say? You are. That, that was a super salty announcement. Now, Swan has acquired Spectre Desktop which is a super interesting development and pretty exciting, to be honest. You know, they're already an exchange company, so to integrate with one of the best, you know, desktop wallets out there is, uh, is a pretty exciting thing. So congratulations to them. Congratulations to Spectre. Exciting to see what happens next. Welcome back, Elise. Did we, uh, did we have you again? We, we do, and I missed the breaking news as I left, so. Swan has announced that they have acquired Spectre Desktop, so. Awesome. Yeah, they're branching out more into that space. But let's keep going. I, I'm not sure exactly where we lost you, but... Uh... So I, I, you know, so I, I suppose I'll just do the quick summary to say that it was, I came into Bitcoin in a fortunate time and using the resources of the community to sort of advance my learning. And it's been a wild ride since. It's a, an incredibly dynamic space, massive concentration of just pure intellectual horsepower and good intentions. It's been a pleasure to be here. I also want to note that you talked, both of you talked about how the space has been matured and sort of lifted in, in maybe the past couple of years. And I wanted to note that Bitcoin Magazine, I feel, has really been a critical part of that, including not just in its digital form, but also in the conference form and so in, in the conference events. And so something that I have noted is that the being present with the community has been really helpful for folks to sort of get the vibe and to realize that, for instance, Bitcoin maxis are not some sort of alternative breed of people. They're, you know, people trying to build the next financial infrastructure to include everyone and not just a few privileged folks. And so I just wanted to hat tip to you all and your team and Bitcoin Magazine helping advance the space and make it feel even more inclusive. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we, we put, we do put a lot of effort into it. And I also want to acknowledge, you know, 
at least in the planning for Bitcoin 2022, you know, we and the team and Harper went back and forth with you on, on so many things. And you were always so, such a pleasure to work with, willing to kind of like roll with the punches and help us figure out the best way to, you know, to present all the various information. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's I, definitely a challenge, but we get there. We get there together. I love Harper getting a shout out on this show because he's a favorite of mine for sure. He is absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, I, I could not have planned Bitcoin 2022 without him. So many late nights. Yeah, absolute, absolute legend. I want to I wanna take a moment to just talk more about sort of the, the level of technical depth that you bring to, to what you do. You were on a panel at Bitcoin 2022 specifically about Lightning. How much of your focus is, is spent on the technical aspects of the things that you invest in versus sort of the broader, I don't know how to put it, you know, the, the team composition, the, the mission and things like that. You, you, you have a bias or it seems like you have a larger focus on the technical aspects than most. And so I'm curious how you think about that. So we definitely are focused on the tech and here's what makes Bitcoin venture capital different from general VC. So you'll hear generalist funds talk about team and market. They want to invest in the best team building in a larger growing market. Stillmark wants to do that too, but there's something in addition to that, that you need to do if you're investing in Bitcoin, Bitcoin companies, which is that you need to be aware of where the protocols are, both Bitcoin core, as well as the second layer technologies that your business counts on if it does. And you need to make sure that you're building in a way that's consistent with those technologies. So to give an example of this going wrong, in 2014, we saw a lot of investment in payment tech companies. And of course, in 2014, their Lightning Network wasn't there to support that sort of scale. And so companies were funded by folks that expected them to really be able to get to Visa or MasterCard level transaction volume when that just wasn't possible given what the core protocol, Bitcoin Core, was either meant to do or could do then. The, the buildup of that tension, I believe, is what led to the disruption around the New York Agreement and the SegWit2x debacle, you know, which is kind of old history and probably something that, you know, at least a significant portion of your audience isn't familiar with. But, you know, nonetheless, to summarize it, it was an event where I think in recognition of, you know, a failure to understand what Bitcoin Core was meant to do people tried to change Bitcoin core protocol. And of course, what we learned from that event, which is well described in Johnny Beer's Block Size War, is that you know fundamentally business interest and people that are well-resourced or privileged or who otherwise think that they might be in charge in Bitcoin, they in fact are not in charge. And so just because there's an agenda that maybe serves a few individuals or businesses that could be advanced through changes to Bitcoin Core, that's not something that we have to worry about happening. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we shouldn't be, you know, sort of aware and remaining up to date on discussions and sort of how the community moves. But we've seen that we have this really robust immune system and also just incentive system that allows to maintain its integrity regardless of where powerful interests lie. But the way to avoid those sorts of mistakes is really to understand what the technologies can do, what the roadmap looks like, and how developers are making choices based on trade-offs. And so this is a technical pursuit, and I think that VCs that participate in the field 
really need to be comfortable to roll up their sleeves and understand the technologies, not just in terms of the code, but also in terms of the trade-offs that went into, you know, introducing changes. Well said, well said. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious with so much going on, how, how you all think about the important things to pay attention to in the innovation space. So we talked a little bit about Swan's acquisition, which is exciting because it's a company that has maintained, you know, such a commitment to their community. So it's excited to see them grow. We talked about Tarot and what that does for adoption. I wonder how how you all think about it. So from Stillmark's perspective, just to sort of lead with an, with an answer here, from Stillmark's perspective, what we like to do is look at where the protocols are going and then to anticipate what that means for entrepreneurs and infrastructure and apps. So I gave the example of talking about seeing SegWit activate in 2017 and knowing what that meant for Lightning Network or for entrepreneurship and innovation in apps and infrastructure that would be built on top of Lightning Network. So we sort of see it in that sort of progressive buildup. But I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how things sort of rise to the top of your list in terms of what's important and exciting. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Voss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our proof of workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Man, that is a fantastic question. I'll give my thoughts and I'd love to hear cues as well. I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the, the most significant challenges that we face in the Bitcoin space is the UX problem, is how can we increase the average person's ability to adopt Bitcoin? And you know, in the U.S., we we live we have a, a level of sort of like financial privilege, given that we you know exist within the country that is currently the world's reserve currency. But in so many other places, that is not the case. And I think technologies like you know Fediment and things like that that make it that make it easy for people who 
aren't interested in Bitcoin for the broad reasons that we all are to adopt it and immediately see those those positives. You know, people that are operating in oppressive financial regimes, people that, you know, are are trying to figure out how they can maintain and persist the value that they've earned over time and space because their governments are they have you know real lived experience of their governments you know confiscating that wealth i think those are the most interesting technologies to me and then second i would say technologies that that allow us to more effectively preserve our financial privacy and freedom in in you know, in first world countries. You know, we've been talking a lot about CBDCs. We, we talked yesterday with Natalie Smolinski, who is going to be, you know, testifying in, in, in a congressional hearing tomorrow about, as I've said it, like how CBDCs are a sales funnel for Satan. And I think technologies that allow the average person who, who isn't kind of by default fixated on financial privacy, technologies that allow them to adopt that really, really easily and natively are going to become more and more important as you know, the, the challenges that we face in the world kind of continue to heat up. Those are the things that are most interesting to me. Q, yeah, so, even. Go ahead. So P, I was just going to say that we see things similarly here. And what one of the things that Stillmark does is it looks at how the technology can be used to sort of meet people where they are in terms of both adopting BTC, the asset, and Bitcoin, the protocol. So I'm going to give an interesting example of this, which is a company that we fairly recently invested in called Pinkfrog. And so what Pinkfrog is, is really it's a game studio. But what they're going to do is they're going to integrate Lightning Network in order to provide a better community experience for their gamers. And they're going to use BTC stats as rewards in the game and also rewards between users. So we've seen that before and that maybe that's not interesting described the way that I just laid it out. But here's the detail that I think really makes it compelling and shows an advancement in the Bitcoin ecosystem broadly. So this is a team that is not sort of coming from the Bitcoin perspective, but is coming from the gaming perspective. So team coming from King, which is one of the most prestigious studios and successful studios in the gaming world. And it's the team that introduced and grew Candy Crush. And Candy Crush is a game that had that has seen, you know, 100 million monthly active users as an example of the adoption that this team has been able to achieve. Now, what they did when they launched, when they left King and launched Pinkfrog is they thought deeply about the gaming experience and how it could be made better for their gamers. And what they're doing is they're looking at a, a young millennial, a, a Gen Z audience. So they're looking at what, at like the TikTok audience. And they're trying to see how, you know, how, how technology or other sorts of innovations can sort of interweave with what these gamers are looking for. So they're not really trying to force Bitcoin in. They're identifying Bitcoin as a way to serve a, a need and a want that they've observed in their user base. And so it's really exciting to see the technologies be used in this way, which is just to solve, you know, problems or to offer, you know, some sort of like fun response to a thing that people want. And so rather than, you know, trying to convince people that they want Bitcoin, it's using Bitcoin technologies to meet people where they are and to integrate 
with their lives or the way that they're spending their time. And so Pink Frog, I think, is kind of like a nice, fun example of that. And then, you know, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, Haro is sort of, you know, the serious application of that, where when we introduced Lightning Network in emerging markets, and I'll use El Salvador again as the example, we saw that people really needed to be banked through Bitcoin and through Lightning Network. They needed to be able to engage with their local community um, and online, you know, without a debit or credit card. And really that was Lightning Network for them. But that BTC's volatility was difficult for people of lower socioeconomic status. And so Tarot comes in to meet people exactly where they're at and to offer a solution for something that they know they need, which are tools to engage both in their local and in the global economy. And so, you know, what you're saying really resonates with me because I see, I'm excited about exactly the same, which is the way that Bitcoin can sort of rise to a variety of challenges that future users have. I love it. I, like I do it. not have such an eloquent answer or response, but I, I typically categorize these things into, it used to be two, but more recently now I've learned a little bit more and, and t- try to touch on the third, but it's adoption, whether or not this product is actually going to help adoption and in what way. Separate but related is friction. Does this introduce more friction for the end user? Does this introduce more friction just for individuals, for businesses that want to use this? Or does this decrease the friction required? And then security, privacy is sort of the final hurdle. I have come to learn and admit that my introduction to Bitcoin was not from the censorship resistant aspect of the network itself, but rather the value proposition of what a the best form of money could be and the opportunities that that presents. But I also recognize that there is a degree of censorship resistance required in the products we provide. And it it will only be that degree, I think, will only continue to be heightened over the next decade. Yeah. So censorship resistance is just fundamentally necessary for the best form of payment or for something that's inclusive of all, including people of lesser means. And so I, you know, I think we're all saying the same thing about what brings us to Bitcoin, really. And then, you know, the way that I think about censorship resistance, and I'm curious about how you guys think of it, too. I think of censorship resistance as really being something that happens most importantly at the protocol level. And in terms of the incentive design of the system, and and here I mean Bitcoin. And so, you know, proof of work has fundamentally a different incentive system and sort of recognizes, you know, human and business psychology as, you know, an actor in the system. And, you know, looking at proof of stake, it's and and this is one of the reasons why I think that Bitcoin is categorically different than what we see in the altcoin space. But in proof of stake, we have a different sort of incentive system. And of course, you know, I, I would say, you know, some some lazy thinking around how the psychology of actors will impact the function of the system. And so I, you know, when I'm thinking about fundamental needs of the space, like censorship resistance, privacy, 
and you know auditability the ability to opt in and know the rules or to opt out because you understand the rules and don't feel like it's a system you want to participate in all of these things are sort of maintained at the protocol level and and this is why you know for folks that want to go deeper in the space really understanding the roadmap and then the way that decisions are made and how things changes are adopted or even how things that don't serve the system well are removed, right? So, you know, in order to really be literate in Bitcoin, it's not just about understanding, you know, the apps and infrastructure, but also understanding, you know, how we got to where we are and how and why decisions were made. You know, so it feels like the, the Bitcoin community is in a good, in a pretty good spot in understanding and then helping educate others on what Bitcoin is and how we got there. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we can maintain that same sort of emphasis in the longer term. But I'm curious how you all think about those fundamentals like censorship resistance. And if you are seeing things on the app and infrastructure side above protocol level that are you know helping advance that. Interesting. I would say, if, if I could jump in, Pete, I would, and maybe this is just my exposure in, in the circles that I run in, but I feel like I am surrounded by a greater degree of conversations around acquiring non-KYC Bitcoin. And like if I, I'm just drawing assumptions and conclusions based on the circles that I run in. But if the end user is sort of seeking out this product, eventually the market will create more opportunities and there will now be more exchanges offering non-KYC Bitcoin versus right now in the marketplace, we unfortunately have an overwhelming opportunity to buy KYC Bitcoin versus none. So that is one thing where as far as uh, censorship resistance goes, to just be able to buy, hold, and transact however we see fit. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And if yeah. we take clues from American history, like it is not out of the realm of possibility for the U.S. government to turn around and say, in the in an effort to increase national security, everyone must turn over their Bitcoin. We have on file who holds Bitcoin. You will be asked to do so, and if you don't, armed guards will be sent to your home. Like that is not out of the realm of possibility. Whether that's a an eighty percent chance or a one percent chance, I'm not here to to speculate on that. But with that in the realm. I know myself, that has become a priority for me. I know the people that I surround myself, that has also become a priority for them. And I would assume, based on that, the other people as well are looking to learning more about, and then as a result, the market will create more products. Yeah, that's a great point, Q. I think that, you know, that's something so... All right. That's it. So even the fact that people have to worry about that, regardless of whether that's a 1% chance or an 80% chance, it still is mentally taxing and has an impact on people when to even consider the, the chance that their you know store of value could be taken from them. So I think even if it's a 1% chance that someone shows up at your door and demands your Bitcoin, that, that's still meaningful, even if it's very small. And so certainly challenges around being able to privately hold wealth are things that, you know, we still have work to do on. We see work kind of at the edges 
And so just to give you an example of this, even having the ability to have separate accounts within an app that supports self-custody. So I'm going to use the example of Casa, which is a Stillmark portfolio company. So Casa last year, I believe, introduced multiple accounts for their clients. So Casa, of course, is a software that provides multi-sig access to people that you know don't need to be highly technical or to spend all of their time worrying about securing their Bitcoin. You use Casa's software and you can have bank level security through multi-sig. Now, if you have separate accounts, what you can do is you can have an account that has your non-KYC Bitcoin stored and managed separately from your KYC Bitcoin. This isn't a full solution, but it's, it's a feature that allows people that care about having you know, non-KYC Bitcoin to more easily manage that. And so we see sort of these, you know, these details, these features emerging to support better privacy. And I would agree with you that this is one of the areas that is important to advance because Bitcoin, you know, I think is best held like cash and, you know, privacy is important for folks optimal functioning, right? To reach our potential, it's good to be not distracted by infringements or encroachments, I should say, on our freedom and privacy. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we continue to see that mature as well. Hmm. So, so Pete, let me ask you another question. When you're putting together the conference, and you're thinking about what's most important for your audience to know. How do you think about that? It feels like it feels like Bitcoin Magazine and organizing the conference has to go through this rigorous process of thinking about what themes are most important to educate the community on, and then also what you know what sorts of new innovations that year really deserve time on stage to create this discussion amongst the community and. You know, I, I want to add this caveat. What I find most interesting about the conferences is just the presence of plebs or people that are not working full time in the Bitcoin space that want to take a vacation week to learn about Bitcoin. So it's a big responsibility. I'm just super keen to know about how things rise to the top so that they, you know, get mentioned in that sort of in that sort of, you know, really important stage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of it had to do and has to do with um, just staying abreast of all the developments in the Bitcoin space itself, talking to leaders in this space. I mean, you know, you and, and I and you and Harper had so many conversations about the, the conference and getting your input. So a lot of it has to do with really soliciting the input of leaders in the space. And then also just, you know, Bitcoin Magazine has such an incredible brain trust of people internally that are focused on the, ver the, the the different aspects of Bitcoin, because there's so many, right? Almost too many for one individual to encapsulate entirely in their own brain. And so just being able to, to really pull from such a broad group of people and get their input and then discuss that internally and kind of go from there is kind of how I approached that last year, certainly. I think the, the, you know, the way that I did it last 
year is kind of creating these these almost mini conferences within the larger conference. You know, so there was the mining stage, there was the open source stage, you know, there was the main stage, of course, but really creating these these kind of interconnected narratives in terms of what was happening on one stage versus another was was really a collaborative process for me personally. I don't have a super like cogent crystallized answer. Obviously, a lot of it is biased by my own or was biased by my own kind of beliefs in terms of what is important. But really, I guess I would say standing on the shoulders of giants, yourself, others, and, and getting input from the community was, was a huge part of that for me. So one thing, so thank you for that. I, I thought that, I think you guys do a great job every year. One thing that we're seeing since the conference, I think, in terms of dynamicism and innovation is the mine is exploration in the mining space. And so yeah, I mentioned yeah. this as a, you know, sort of, you paid a lot of attention to it last year, but I mentioned it as like a, a you know, a tip for, I think, Miami 2023. I hope we're going back to Miami. You know, it's been interesting to see, you know, sort of this, this shift in entrepreneurial attention to the mining space and people really feeling like they can take shots on how to mature the mining space or even how to create breadth in it and then to better service folks operating in the space through software and other tools. And so that's one of the things, one of the stages that I missed last time at the conference because it was so, so busy and so many great things to see was the mining stage. And so now just seeing how much entrepreneurial activity is happening in mining that will be a main stop for me next year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I keep sort of drawing us back to the historical aspects of it because, you know, I, I wasn't around super early and of course you were, I'm so curious, you know, what was your experience in, in, you know, 2014 and around there around, you know, you were heavily involved in, or as I understand it in, you know, Blockstream's mining operation. And what was that like? And what were some of your conclusions? What did you learn from that experience versus what's happening now? If you could speak to that, that'd be great. So in 2014 and 2015, of course, Blockstream wasn't mining yet. Adam and I met in 2014 when they were getting, when they were putting together their first seed financing. So effectively around, around, around done for the incorporation of the company. And then the focus was really on what needed to be built in, in Bitcoin on top of the core protocol. So as to not in any way, you know, bog down Bitcoin core with activity that didn't, you know, wasn't necessarily optimal to host there. And so what that meant in 2014 and 2015 was experimentation around side chains and, you know, sort of like intellectual development of liquid network. And so you know, in 2014, when I met Adam, what we talked about then was how Liquid Network could develop to allow exploration and a broader utility set that was then anchored and secured by Bitcoin, but that moved, you know, these sort of, you know, activities off of Bitcoin Core that didn't need to be there. You know, Blockstream has, of course, matured since then. So it's whenever I'm in the Blockstream offices or on calls with these folks, I'm always thinking about really how fortunate the ecosystem is and how fortunate I am to be, you know, working in a space where minds like this that have really dedicated Adam in particular their life to the advancement of Bitcoin, really, even before Bitcoin, Adam was working on similar themes. And so, you know, it's, I think that Blockstream is really thinking about, you know, 
where is really insightful about where Bitcoin is moving and how they can extend the utility and drive adoption of Bitcoin. And, you know, the most sophisticated teams in Bitcoin are thinking really similarly. And so it's about anticipating where the technology is, how that impacts or affects adoption. And then, of course, what we know from a historical perspective is that as adoption increases, so too has the price from a longer term perspective. And so all of these things are really interrelated. And I think Blockstream has been a great example of that for sure. And I, I am very lucky to have been here early enough to sort of see Blockstream unfold. It was more recently, of course, that I joined the board and that sort of coincides with when they started mining, but scaling up mining is more recent. Elise, I'd love just if you could maybe share both on the cultural space of how Bitcoin has changed and how this bear market to you feel so different. I know that Stellmark wasn't necessarily formed during the, the previous bear markets, but I'm also curious if just in your knowledge, if you notice deal making in previous markets differ from the deal made deals being made in this bear market. Yeah, this is a great question also. So this bear market is different because of the macro conditions that you know exist as sort of like a, a subtext to the bear market. And then also, of course, the challenge of much higher electricity costs than is standard as a result of Putin's war. And so it's a it feels like a more challenging bear market. And it certainly has been for miners, as we can see from you know publicly available data. Now, that said, if you're not in the mining space, if you're not a miner, I think this bear market might actually be an easier experience. And that's because of the, the greater abundance of venture capital dollars for early stage founders. So if you're building at the pre-seed, the seed, or even the series A stage, there's just more dollars looking to support you than there was even a couple of years ago. And so actually looking at the data, valuations at the early stage have stayed flat or even risen a bit than if we look back a couple of years ago. So it's it's when we're in, we're almost in Q4, right? But if we rewind to Q4 in 2019, today founders for the same sort of product market position and metrics, will get, you know, a relatively significantly higher valuation than they would then simply as a result of the growth of the venture capital space. And so my hope is that that allows founders more breathing room to build. And one of the challenges of building a company in the Bitcoin space is that you're going to have exposure to the peaks and troughs of Bitcoin. People tend to be more interested, especially newcomers are more interested when the Bitcoin price is on a tear. And then, you know, historically I've lost interest when we're sideways or in a bear market. And that of course makes sense, but founders in order to prepare for that need to be really thoughtful about diversifying revenue or value proposition even so that the product feels pertinent, fresh and important regardless of the market conditions. And this is really difficult and challenging, but to go back to the greater abundance of capital, if you can raise a larger round because you can get you know a, a more fair valuation let's say 
then it gives you more breathing room to sort of deal with the troughs and to, to pivot and test your product and incorporate feedback. And so what we're seeing that might be a little bit different in this bear market than I've observed in prior bear markets is that founders are using this time to really dig into the metrics that they gathered both in the peak of the bull market and then all the way through to where we are today and starting to discern what that means about their users, what, what you know, aspects of the product users have responded to, what hasn't worked, and then to use this time to just be heads down and building. And you see that, again, to go back to Lightning Labs, like incredibly quick development of Tarot. They just announced it in April and we're in September and we have testnet code out. You know, teams have used this quieter time in the Bitcoin space to just get really smart and focused and clear headed. And so my expectation is that we reap the reward of that as we build up to the next bull market, assuming that, you know, history repeats itself. So, oh, go ahead, Q. Nope. <laughs> so on my side, guys, I'll add another little note. We're not seeing any slowdown. So in terms of Stillmark's work and our conversations with founders, including, you know, like the top 5% of talent, that's not changed at all. If anything, there's been a pickup. And so, you know, while the public might be less interested or like anxious to be new, newly participatory in the Bitcoin ecosystem in a bear market. What has, you know, sort of run counter to that is that entrepreneurs have, have, you know, used this as an entry point. And so we've seen in a, a rise in talent, a rise in people's willingness to take a chance. And I think there's a lot of factors at play here, including that just with Every day that Bitcoin exists, we know more about it. And so we can, it has a track record and we, we can sort of pull from prior events to be a better judge of what we expect to happen in the future. It feels more de-risked. And the benefit to the ecosystem is that that's allowed talent, new talent from outside the Bitcoin ecosystem to take a chance and to, and to build new things. And so you know, what I'm seeing at Stillmark is sort of, you know, an explosion of entrepreneurialism and really smart thinking about how to advance Bitcoin's utility and drive adoption. I'm curious, and I don't know if this information can necessarily be shared. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to lead you to a path where I think it can legally be shared, but private market valuations aren't necessarily public knowledge, i.e. private markets. I'm curious if valuations in the private markets have also seen declines in the way we've seen declines in public market companies, as well as the value of Bitcoin and so on, either in- Not, not business- at the early stage, Q. Okay. So at the early stage, so I'm talking just about pre-seed, seed, and series A. Valuations are flat, but if we look back just a couple of years, they're up. So, and by up, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like 150% increase from Q4 2019. And, but, but I want to put that into a broader context that valuations in the Bitcoin space have been, especially at the early stage, really healthy. So they are generally metrics driven. 
And that's important because you want founders to have adequate support and to be set up for success for their next financing. So if you have sort of a wild round where, you know, you're raising your pre-seed at, you know, $500 million post money valuation, then the expectation and to maintain a, you know, sort of healthy capitalization of your company, you need to raise your next round at a billion dollar valuation, right? And so, and, and we've seen people get into big trouble over those sorts of dynamics and not planning for that. In the Bitcoin space though, again, because of sort of, you know, a lack of sufficient capital, I think now we're kind of caught up on the early stage side, but a prior lack of sufficient capital, we've always had these really reasonably priced rounds, which have set founders up for success to raise their subsequent round, even in a bear market. And, and we get, there's a major advantage of that. And then if you look at the altcoin space, of course, you see just these really sort of wild, really loose and fast fundings happening with no justification for valuations or for amount of money raised. It really just looks like a competition between multiple multi-billion dollar funds that need to you know, deploy capital. And so the result of that, that works if you're, if you're investing in tokens, right? Or if your company can just sort of print more equity in the form of tokens. But for a company that is not relying on tokens and is actually a traditional company that, you know, that capitalizes itself through the sale of equity, through the sale of shares, you know, that, that it doesn't work. You need to sort of be strategic and thoughtful in how you capitalize your company because you can't just print more equity, of course. And so Bitcoin has been fortunate to not end up in that sort of, you know, loose and fast funding environment that ultimately, you know, can be really damaging for founders. So while we haven't, while we have seen an increase in valuation, even in the bear market, we haven't seen that, you know, be irresponsible. And I think founders are still really set up for success. You know, hearing all of that, if I had just woken up and not been aware of just the broader macro environment, it seems like the Bitcoin ecosystem itself is continues to grow, is thriving, and there is just continued value add to the network itself, contributors, and so on. I'm kind of curious I guess like truly the reason is macro, but where or what are you focused on for the next sort of stage, the next bull run? Where where are you prioritizing your time and effort right now? That's a great question. So let me tell you how we think about investing. So we have three buckets that we evaluate. So first is we're investing in companies that financialize BTC, the asset. And so those would be companies like Akaza or a Hoseki. And Hoseki, of course, is proof of reserves software that allows Bitcoiners, Bitcoin holders to use their BTC without selling or moving it in order to verify their creditworthiness. The second bucket are companies building in the mining space, in particular, if their approach to mining is through software. And so what I mean by that is, how can software be used to facilitate better efficiency or ROI for miners? How can software be used to connect energy providers with mining operations and so on and so forth? Our first investment there is Satoshi Energy out of Texas. 
And then the third bucket is our moonshot bucket. And these are companies that are building second or third layer protocols on top of Bitcoin or on top of Lightning Network or Liquid. And then the applications that are built to leverage those. And so within those three buckets, we fund one has a really mature position in the last bucket. So the Lightning space. We feel like we are, you know, have really backed the leading teams in advancing Lightning Network from an infrastructure perspective. So specifically to reference the stack that is, exists in the Stillmark portfolio, Stillmark is a very proud investor in AMBOSS Technologies, Voltage, and Lightning Labs. And so these three companies have really built technology that helps, you know, expand the utility of Lightning Network and make it more accessible for folks that are not and for businesses that aren't going to have a 24-7 dedicated 30-person, you know, Lightning Network IT team. We, you know, we are trying to pay more attention now to companies building in the BTC asset space and also companies advancing mining. So one of the most mature sectors of the Bitcoin space, of course, is the mining industry. And we see the rapid advancement or professionalization of the space. And of course, we, you know, where we can be helpful to founders doing that work, we want to be. And one of the ways that we can be is something that P referenced earlier, which is our technical approach to venture capital and investing. So I think you know, if we identify a company, a software company in the mining space that could, you know, perhaps that we could help accelerate their cadence by coming to the, the whiteboard with them and thinking through the technology strategy or their data strategy or more, then, you know, that's the type of team that we should be working with. And that's not much different from what we do in those other buckets, but that's sort of how we're thinking about the ecosystem and where we should be spending our time as, as we, you know, come towards the end of this year. Exciting. So, go ahead. Go ahead, Q. What, no. what do you guys, I should ask you guys, I should put you guys to work by asking you where you think I should be spending my time. Have you put on the VC hat for a day before and thought about what you would back if you were investing in the Bitcoin space? Oh, wow. Q, I feel like you're going to have a better answer than I will to this to this question. I want... You can't I, say a weed-focused Bitcoin company. No, that that's just personal joys and pleasures. <laughs> I really do want to see how, as we separate ourselves, the Bitcoin network itself, as the largest, best, and strongest proof-of-work network in all of the crypto nonsense bullshit that's out there, I think it's a great opportunity to actually highlight and utilize energy in different ways. We spend so much time talking about the ability that upstream data and these different miners came up with to utilize stranded energy in the natural gas mining process. And this is an incredible, incredible process, but it's not going to stop there. I've long believed that it will the next iteration of clean energy capture and utilization will come from Bitcoin mining because we are incentivized to find the cheapest, most efficient source of energy. And I also am very curious to see, like we see and talk a lot about like the at-home projects, home miners who 
use their miner to as their water heater or keep their house warm or however. And these very unique and interesting ways to, again, capitalize on this just stranded energy that exists in the universe and utilize it in new and unique ways. I really think that there will be awesome developments coming out of, oh, you're a home miner. Don't just worry about mining your Bitcoin. This is just one fraction of what you can do with the energy you're now going to be utilizing. You can use it for all these other facets. And I, I truly think there's going to be some very interesting developments out of not necessarily the hands-on on the miner itself, but almost like a attachments to it or upgrades, if you will, to just at-home or mining operations. I don't know. I smoke a lot of weed, so that's where these ideas come up with sometimes. <laughs> that's funny. I could not agree more. I think you're exactly right. So we are, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in what you just said. So first of all, I, this is a very controversial statement, but I think that in addition to Satoshi solving the problem of how to resource the underbanked and unbanked, Satoshi also solved the climate crisis, if we, if we want to call it that. So fundamentally, the way miners compete is for the lowest, is for access to lowest cost of electricity. And that lowest cost of electricity exists in sustainable sources like hydropower as, as you know, one of the ones that we're paying a lot of attention to right now. And, and we've seen some really interesting experimentation going back to entrepreneurs trying new things. We've seen some really interesting experimentation around methane mitigation and just using landfill at gas offputs as a cheap source of energy. And whether or not you find, you know, methane or carbon released into the atmosphere to be a problem, we have to acknowledge that it's a very cheap source of energy. And so, you know, fundamentally, if you own a landfill, you have this hazard on hand with you, which is, you know, methane, gas. And so to be able to allow landfills to mitigate that hazard while also producing revenue from what they had previously considered a burden, it, you know, I think that Vespine Energy is going to be the first and not the last company to recognize that opportunity and to capitalize on it. It's really wonderful that Satoshi was able to introduce a capitalistic incentive towards sustainable energy and methane mitigation. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate that Ethereum has decided to opt out of contributing to, you know, a climate solution by switching from proof of work to proof of stake. But what we know in, the, in their decision to proof of stake is that they can no longer contribute to remain to the sort of like the march, the progression that Bitcoin is on to removing carbon from the environment. So whether or not we find that a valuable thing, it's just something that's happening and it's really exciting to see. And, you know, there, there will be investment opportunities in that space. And so Q, I'm quite aligned with you in terms of areas of promise to pay attention to. And Pete, what about you? If you put your VC hat on, where would you be spending time and allocating capital? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I, I don't feel like I'm going to give a super like well-considered or like nuanced answer here, but the biggest thing for me is trying to figure out how to mitigate some of the the kind of propaganda attacks that we're starting to see. We've, I mean, we've seen for a long time, but 
as the global financial system becomes more and more unstable, the attacks that we're seeing against Bitcoin from a you know kind of propaganda and narrative perspective are kind of scaling up more and more significantly. You know, we've talked about CBDCs during this call. You know, obviously the the kind of environmental attacks are are ramping up. And you know, as we all know on this call, those claims are are utterly spurious, but they're still scaling. And the average person who has not you know, explored Bitcoin at all is often taken in by those narratives. And so I, I don't know what the solution is, but I think figuring out, I mean, you know, the work that BPI is doing, the Bitcoin Policy Institute is super important. And and I don't know what it looks like to to scale into those types of, of investments from a VC perspective, but if there are ways to to combat the the broader anti-Bitcoin narratives more effectively, if there are companies that are that are working really heavily in that area, I think those are going to become more and more substantial and important as time goes on. So the thought. way that I would respond and agree with what you just said is to say that all companies need to recognize that they are operating in that environment. And mm-hmm. so this is really about storytelling and narrative development, because what we see from the you know, traditional from the incumbent financial system, from folks that instead of seeing Bitcoin and Lightning Network as an opportunity for them, see it as a challenge for them. Those folks, same as many of the folks in the altcoin space, are really motivated to bring arguments to an emotional level. And Bitcoin responds with facts because we have the facts on our side. But the emotional arguments work when people are paying, you know, are spending 30 minutes on an argument versus spending days or weeks digging into the science and the math of it. And so what I think we need to do on the Bitcoin side and at a company level is to consider the appeal of our product and the message that it communicates for folks outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem. So for people that want to diversify into BTC, for example, but don't have you know, a week or two to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and understand what it is or what proof of work is or what it means for miners to compete for lowest cost energy. So when we're telling the story of what our company is or what our product does or what our roadmap aims to accomplish, we need, I think, to do that not just for Bitcoiners, but for folks that are going to be learning about Bitcoin through us and we need to add emotion to the story. So we have the facts on our side, but we know that the emotional arguments can compel, especially in the short term. And so our work now is to add that storytelling into our business and consider it a fundamental part of what we do. And so what, what we'll be trying to support our portfolio companies in doing and just the space as a whole is to be you know, really thoughtful and to spend resources in developing the messages that we communicate. And so I, you know, Bitcoin Magazine has one of been the most been one of the most important leaders here. So I'm preaching to the choir when I say this, but but I think the way that we address the problems that you point out is to all know that it's part of our responsibility to do a better job at communicating. And the way to know if we're doing a good enough job is to just observe the response to our message. And so we you know, are not going to teach everyone about proof of work until they get it and can explain it themselves. But what we can do is, is simplify the facts, summarize them, and add a good story to it. And for example, talk about how 
mining is contributing and on, on a path to be carbon negative in 2024 and how exciting that is, if that's something that excites, you know, the person on the other end of the conversation. So I, you know, I think it's a, it's a problem that all of us need to address and take seriously. But I think that I've seen, you know, I've seen like little, little glimmers of hope that our messages are starting to stick or are sort of, you know, this simplification of some of the facts we offer back in these types of conversations are, are you know, starting to stick. So as an example, to take in a little bit different of a direction, we have seen historically this ambition from some communities in the altcoin space to confuse and to obfuscate exactly what they're doing or how what they're doing is related to Bitcoin. So a great example of that is that there's, you know, there's this sort of desire for an attachment to Lightning Network. And so just to give you a specific example, in the past couple of weeks, I received a deck from a fund that is in their name, in the fund's name, it says Lightning. So it implies, right, an association, one would think, with Lightning Network, but in fact, it's a token fund. So, you know, there's probably an intention to sort of obfuscate the work here. But I'm starting to see, I'm starting to be better able to explain what Lightning Network is and how it's specific to Bitcoin and what that means in terms of what you get from Lightning Network and, and how that compares and contrasts with what you would get with a token or an altcoin protocol. So I hope, I hope that we're starting to get better about figuring out how to push back and counteract some of the FUD or like, you know, mean style attacks that Bitcoin has handled. But I'm certainly excited about the the work of Bitcoin dedicated policy groups, and I'm hoping to see more Bitcoin dedicated lobbying efforts and just basic communication efforts with folks that exist outside of the community and, and won't have the time to ramp up on Bitcoin technologies the same way we did. Love it, love it. I wanna to shift topics slightly and just acknowledge at Bitcoin 2022, you wore the most incredible cape I've ever seen. And I have to tell you, I was so jealous. I was like, man, like, where can I get a cape like that just to cruise around? Because I was on a I little did? scooter, you know? Yeah, yeah, you wore it. Maybe cape. No, it wasn't really a cape. It was like a jacket that you had the sleeves off. And so it just kind of like flowed behind you. I just had to tell you, I, I was super jealous. I am very complimented by your acknowledgement of, you know, my cape. I should, I'll, I'll have to make that like a staple for main stage contributions at future conferences. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was, that was really fun. So that, um, yeah, it was a really fun event. So thank you for having me there. And in the conference last year, of course, I got to do a couple panels. One was with the Cape on stage with, you know, other investors that were in the cryptocurrency space. And, and then one was of course on the open source stage with developers where I was, you know, sort of way, they were like way out of my league for sure. So, uh, but it was, it's really fun. And, and that second stage, the open source stage really reflects, you know, frankly, like the day-to-day -day conversations that we have. So it's much more typical for myself and for Stillmark to be in conversation with someone like an Andre Neves from Zebedee or Rockstar Dev 
than, you know, frankly, it is to be talking to crypto investors. And so it was fun to have the contrast of both. And funny that you remember a cape for the, the conversation with crypto investors, because I think, you know, that would have been appropriate for that conversation for sure. So we'll have to make sure to carry that thread forward. Yeah, you actually, I know exactly the conversation you're talking about. And there was a great moment where the person who was moderating it was asked a question about Ethereum. And you were basically like, very, very eloquently, you were like, what the fuck are we talking about here? Like, it's Bitcoin only. Like, why are we even talking about this? And it was a great moment. So yeah, uh, it's not fair you for, audience, for setting that right? line. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not fair to the audience. So I feel that, you know, Bitcoin conference is an opportunity for us to sort of try to focus on the signal and get outside of the noise. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be outside of other people's like motivations, right? But the audience is there. Here's what I find like so charming and like special about the conference is that there's people there that are like accountants, dentists, you know, surgeons, you know, I don't know, like bus drivers, right? Like there's everyone there that, you know, is busy. They have a job or two jobs and a family and they've decided to take a week out of their lives to have fun in the Bitcoin community and to learn about Bitcoin. And so I always think of that, you know, like engagement with that audience is just like really special, almost like a sacred thing where we should, you know, like honor the time that they've decided to spend there, which is just like absolutely incredible and is why any of us can do the work that we do, right? It's because there's other just like normal people minding their business day to day that decide to come hang out with us for a week. So I don't know. It's, you know, I think that we should go into that with the motivation of talking about and hopefully in some ways advancing the dialogue around Bitcoin versus any sort of other incentives that we might have to, you know, promote a project that we're doing or something like that. So anyway, I, you know, it's, I'd rather not talk about Ethereum, but especially not on stage at a Bitcoin magazine sponsored conference. I agree with you more. I mean, I think that was a little bit of shade P being thrown your way, but I love it here for No, I mean, it's fair. It's fair. There's a lot of, a lot of, you know, contradicting incentives and, and master feed, but I, I, I knew that having you on that panel would, uh, would, would balance it out effectively. And and you, you definitely delivered. I also want to apologize on the, on the news desk, you know, you were put next to Q here. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry that we had to subject you to that, uh, that horrible. Uh... I felt like, so Pete, I felt like I got the best news desk lineup. I don't know if that was, you know, it, it felt like it was specially curated for me. And I had such a good time with the folks I was on the news desk with and it, especially in including Q. And it was also, that was really my first opportunity to meet Natalie, which was fun. And she did such an insanely good job of hosting and organizing the conversation. And so that was a really great time. And a a little sort of side fact, the next time I saw Natalie, she and I were at dinner at Paris Hilton's house. So it was from one conversation about Bitcoin to another in a totally different context. And it was good to sort of like meet and anchor the relationship at a, at the Bitcoin conference. That is a very, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that conversation because I cannot even imagine what that was like. Did Paris try to sell you an NFT though? 
No. So I think, you know, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, everyone has to do their job and some people's job is to pay attention to trends and to sort of engage and test them out. And that can also be good for Bitcoin, by the way, so that we can learn about, you know, what people find interesting and compelling and think about if there's an opportunity for Bitcoin to serve that audience. But, I, you know, my impression of Paris is in that conversation is that she really gets it. She gets Bitcoin as different from other other tokens, basically. And, you know, frankly, like at the Bitcoin Magazine conference, one thing I saw was that there were these really, you know, like prominent, you know, sophisticated leaders, including women leaders that showed that they really got it. So the other example I want to give is Serena Williams. And when I was on the news desk with Q, that was one of the panels that we got the chance to review. And, you know, the way I interpreted her participation at the conference was that she was she fundamentally understood Bitcoin, understood what it meant for financial inclusion and how having a stable, you know, un, unbending rule set that was software enforced was different and special to Bitcoin and why that was necessary to create, you know, an alternative to the conventional incumbent financial system. And so I saw that in Serena Williams through the conference. I've seen that similar from Paris. And so I think even if people experiment in other spaces and with other trends, I, I don't think, you know, I, I, am, I still, you know, consider folks, even folks that are not purely Bitcoin, I still consider folks able to understand Bitcoin and to contribute positively to the space, even if they have, you know, diversified interests. And so... You know, even to bring that back to the investor panel Q that, or excuse me, P that you set up, you know, I thought that it was really well curated and that, you know, just because someone's focus isn't Bitcoin, I, it doesn't mean that they don't belong in a Bitcoin conversation. I'm going to repeat this because I, I'm going to try to will this, although I cannot make promises because I do not have any say or power in anything that happens with the conference, but I look forward to the fireside chat between Elise and uh, Serena Williams. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be wonderful. I did. Let, I did try very. I did try very hard to make that happen. By the way, yeah, I was so excited that you reached out and you were like, "This would be amazing." And then, you know, the uh, people don't get to see it, but, but you know, back of house, right? There's all these like rabbit tunnels that go between all the different stages, and of course, you experienced it. And uh, bring no, I'm serious, man. Like bringing in the the all the various, you know, higher profile people. We had little golf carts that like ran around. We had to plan out the routes. It was nuts. And unfortunately, by the time I was able to like pitch that, they were already back in their like secure enclave. And they were like, we can't leave. Otherwise the, you know, the enemies of the state will find us. So next year. It's, it's, a, it's a military grade operation. We know this oh, yeah. because you know we almost had to use one of the golf carts to get my colleague Bakash Singh from stage to a meeting so we know the level of organization that you all are maintaining over there and we would feel very comfortable to go to war with you all because we see how well you organize this you know like seemingly should be chaotic system and somehow make it not chaotic so anyhow whoever is managing the ops there if they ever decide to leave let me know we have a million companies we can place them with it's been really <laughs> impressive to watch it grow I'm going to do one of my world famous dramatic readings. And of course, we're bringing back the image version of this. But truly, what you see is like the nicely stitched 
the meme where it's like, oh, like what you see on the front and it's like so beautiful and perfect. And then the back, it's all crossed over. And it's like, this doesn't make sense how the front looked that pretty. It is pure chaos on the back end. I can assure you that. But at least I've one final, and this is the most important question for today. Are you a cast iron or stainless stainless steel maxi? Okay, well, this is a great question. I am so busy that I do not know what I use. I am not a big cook and I am pretty much, you know, we talk to founders 25 hours a day. So that does not allow for cooking hours. And so I don't even know what we use. So I am opting out of um, the Twitter drama. Exactly. Because I just don't know. What should I use? Personally, oh, the winner of this has is Nick Can't Mind because he cooks his steaks with molten lava. There's no better option. I loved loved that. You all lose. I, <laughs> all joking aside, I love this meme right now. It's like basically for those of you that are not you know deeply tied into the the Bitcoin Twitter drama. There's a lot of like seemingly real arguments that happen on Bitcoin Twitter, you know, specific technologies, specific people, and they get really, really heated, especially in bear markets, right? We, we tend to like anchor to these, to something you said earlier, at least these like extremely emotional things, because that's, that's what forms memory. That's how we sort of anchor into reality. And so I have been absolutely loving the kind of like meme battles that happen. And my current favorite one is, of course, the the cast the cast iron versus stainless steel with just everyone coming out of the woodwork on one side or the other. You know, it's it's very dramatic. If uh, if you're listening and you have not weighed in on you know the 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 battle, please do so. I of course made the point that uh, you know unless unless you're cooking with you know a sort of black hole singularity egg shaped object that uh, you know hatches your cooked your fully cooked steak into reality, you know your 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 estate is chill. I feel like. I'm right, but you know everyone has their own opinion, and some of those opinions are wrong. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. We like awesome. to have fun on this show, <laughs> Elise. What, as we wind down, what did we not get an opportunity to discuss with you that you would like to take this time to just share or discuss with our audience before we wrap up? I'll just share that if there's founders watching that want to connect to discuss and allow us to learn about what they're building that they should reach out. So we have a website, stillmark.com, and we have a special button on that website that allows founders to just reach out and email us. And we consider consider all founders in the space really a part of our community and our family. And so we're quite keen to, like I said, we talk to founders 25 hours a day. So we're quite keen to get to know folks early and just to sort of learn from them. And so that's, that will be the last thing I share. I'm really grateful that you guys allowed me to join you today. I hope we'll do this soon in the future and, and, you know, please reach out anytime that we can pitch in with anything that you're building. I've really appreciated your contributions to helping advance Bitcoin and helping create an even better integrated community. Thank you for joining us and for, for taking the time away from your countless hours of pitch meetings, Elise. Thank you for the work that you do to push Bitcoin forward. Awesome. Um, Thanks, guys. Before we head to a commercial break, I do want to remind everyone that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off before ticket prices go up. We are exactly two weeks away from the biggest, baddest Bitcoin party kicking off in all of Europe. So lock in those tickets now. Ticket prices are going to go up. 
CK will tell you when. I don't remember off the top of my head. I apologize, but I promise you, tickets won't be cheaper than they are right now. So lock them in and use promo code BM Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.